Rebecca, don't panic. But I'm going to go off book for a moment before I read the, the gospel passage this morning. Um, that was a beautiful baptism. I think that Roman's family have escaped. I don't blame them. I've been there <laughs> with a screaming child. But what a beautiful example. Oh, they're waving me down. We can't hear me. It's green. I'm very loud, if that's helpful. There we go. Oh, now I'm very loud. Um, what a beautiful example, though, um, of baptism right there and of our walk with God, because we as Presbyterians baptize anyone of any age, any size, whoever you are, we will throw water at you and baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that, that that's because it's not our work. It's God's work in us. And sometimes we get dragged into God's work, literally kicking and screaming. And so please hold that beautiful, holy image um, in your hearts as we wrestle with a difficult passage this morning, that sometimes we get dragged into what God has to do, kicking and screaming, and hopefully offered a nap later on. Our gospel passage this morning, this difficult passage we will wrestle with, is from the gospel according to Luke chapter 14, verse 1, and then jumping ahead to verses 7 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, he being Jesus, they were watching him carefully. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner, or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. I love that passage so much. Also, I hate it, <laughs> but mostly I love it. Will Willimon's lectionary-based commentary series starts off this week's commentary with this gem. Jesus can sometimes be an upsetting, difficult-to-guess 
when invited into our lives. And I feel the same way about that line from that commentary as I do this gospel passage today. I love that line so much. Also, I hate it, but mostly I love it. I love this scripture because as a jail chaplain, I spend day in and day out with those who are regarded as being on the bottom. And it's exhausting. It is frustrating to hear story after story, day in and day out, about how the world has beaten people down before they ever had a chance. I want to cheer Jesus on and say, that's right, go get them. We need to stand up for those the world looks down on. But also, I hate it because I'm an upper middle class white woman who on a personal level has a fairly easy life. Sure, my kids aren't perfect. I'm sorry if you're watching the live stream kids, you're not. We're not immune in our family from the effects of mental health disorders, physical or developmental disabilities, but we have the means to deal with them when they come. We have good health insurance, padding in the bank and a safe, albeit cluttered house. Our cat spent two days at the vet this past week. Don't worry, he's fine now. But we didn't have to choose between a very high vet bill and the quality or quantity of our groceries for the week because my spouse works for Google. I've got a hard job, but an easy life compared to much of the world. And while we often joke when we're leaving the building on Friday afternoon, well, they're letting me out of jail again this week. It's kind of a terrible joke because there are 1,500 hurting people there who aren't going home to see their families. And feel pretty guilty about that sometimes. So I love this passage, and I hate it, and mostly I love it. I love it because it gives hope to people like those I work with every day, that even when the world doesn't see them, God does. Hate it because if I'm honest with myself, I'm one of the people Jesus is warning might just wind up at the end of the line if I'm not really careful about how I interact with others and God and even myself. My life might be easier now, but true robust connection to God and others in the grand scheme of recreation and God's kingdom is going to be so very much harder because I have it so much easier. I don't have to fight as hard all the time because I have a supportive family and friends and a stable bank account and a really good therapist backing me up. There are far more distractions in my life that are likely to get in the way of me remembering how very much I need Jesus. Distractions like retirement funds and travel and which room of the house needs updated next. And it's not that those aren't good things to have. It's not that we're supposed to feel guilty that we do have them. It's just that when we do, we have to be so much more careful because comfort is a dangerous trap. Success is a dangerous trap. Having everything you need is a dangerous trap. I love this passage 
Because Jesus really chews up these entitled dinner guests who are jockeying for the best seats and that host who's so smug about who he collected at the party. I think most of us knows what it feels like to be left out. And we like it when Jesus brings in those who are. But also I hate this passage because I have to admit that I'm not immune from being that guest who's pushing someone out of the way because of my own self-importance. Or worse, sometimes I'm that host encouraging it in others. Not going to lie, it's always a little bit of an ego boost when I get an invitation to preach at a church like Fox Chapel. So a passage like this one today is a real kick back into the reality of God's kingdom. Sometimes when I'm wrestling with hard passages like this one, the ones where I'm preaching to myself as much or more than any of you, in those times I like to think about some of my mentors and ancestors and the faith, those who have gone before me and paved the way and helped to raise me up. But this week, I was reminded that we can draw inspiration the other direction in history, too. I don't know how many of you um, actively have teenagers in your life right now, but I love teenagers. My roots are in youth ministry, and I love being a mom with teenagers in the house. My oldest is 31, adopted as a teenager, if you are trying to do the math in your head right now, as I know some of you are. The next in line is 22 and also out on her own. And now at home, I have a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. So if you're a fan of the sort of math you were just doing in your head a moment ago when I said I have a 31-year-old, you can figure out that I have had at least one teenager in the house at all times since 2007. I haven't eaten in years, my friends, no matter how much time I spend at the grocery store. It's a good thing I love teenagers. Here's what I love about them. They still have the ridiculous, wonderful, imaginative spark of childhood burning inside them, but they're also old enough to have real conversations with about justice and compassion and how the world should be. They aren't jaded yet like us grown-ups are. Most of them haven't started vying for a better position at the table yet because they've only recently been allowed to move up from the kids' table. So last weekend, my husband and I took 11 teenagers, our two youngest, our nephew, and eight of their friends camping in the mountains of West Virginia with no cell phone signal or Wi-Fi. And here's the beautiful part. They were a million times less antsy about the phone thing than I was. I really struggled with what if something happens at work and nobody can get a hold of me to solve their problems. <laughs> Hello, ego. I was absolutely the host in that moment, feeling so important that I needed cell phone signal for all of the people who recognized how very important and indispensable I am. And guess what? Work didn't need me for those four days. I have a great staff. They had it under control. I was meant to just hang out and enjoy that time with those awesome kids. They were not worried at all about how important they are. 
They spent the four-day weekend playing games, going for hikes, making sure my dogs know exactly how adorable they are, which is very adorable for the record. They talked around the campfire about how they're going to change the world and make it more fair and just for everyone. And listening to their conversations around the campfire, I am confident that that generation is headed in the right direction. They reminded me of the importance of being present in the moment. Because the place you're needed most is right where you are. And they reminded me that we're supposed to pay attention to the people around us. We need to hang out more with people who are worried about making the world a better place for everyone rather than their own importance. Unless you think it is just my kids, because like I said earlier, they're not perfect. <laughs> a friend texted me earlier this week about her niece's boyfriend. She said his parents wanted to invite the local police to his graduation party to thank them. And he said, cool, I'm going to invite the local homeless shelter too. They get it. It's really easy to just hang out with people like you. It's hard to create real community and fellowship with people who are different from you, especially when they're vastly different. It's difficult and vulnerable work. And the easier our lives get and the more we have arrived or become successful, the less important it feels for us to do that difficult and vulnerable work because we don't have to rely on as many other people to be okay. That's the trap of success and comfort. So we keep positioning ourselves, sometimes consciously, but more often subconsciously, to have the highest quality friends and neighbors and to have a great network without having to rely on them for any sort of real community or support. And occasionally we volunteer at a homeless shelter or a hospital, so we feel like we've helped someone less fortunate. But even that is sort of an ego trip because we never actually become friends with the sick or the homeless. Jesus is a difficult, upsetting guest to invite into our lives. Because Jesus challenges us to stop looking to the people or achievements or things that make us look better or more important or more independent and to be more aware of the people around us, even those who aren't seen that way. We are not called to charity because it somehow saves us from being too rich or privileged or comfortable. We're called to see people, all people, for the precious, beloved children of God that they are. And to see ourselves in their eyes. I was teaching a trauma recovery class to a group of women in the jail a few years back. and In that class, we talk about what some of the causes of trauma are, what it takes to heal from it, and how to start moving forward in that healing 
process. In one of our class sessions, we were talking about some of the ways that trauma affects us long term. Things like depression, anxiety, nightmares, unhealthy social boundaries, addiction. And one woman began weeping. I asked if she was okay, and she said, I just realized this is why I'm so messed up. And heads nodded somberly around the room. And it occurred to me in that moment that I wasn't too far removed from being right where she was. If I'd had the wrong friends during or after my trauma, if my family had been less functional than it was, if I'd had a less privileged education, so many ifs that could have completely changed which side of that classroom I was on. I have no more business at the table than she does. That's why we are told by Jesus to stop jockeying for position at the table or worrying about who we are inviting because it is all an illusion. Willimon goes on to say, rules within God's kingdom are different than those by which the world lives. Those whom we place on top sometimes end up on the bottom. Those whom we regard as being on the bottom often end up on the top. Jesus upsets our values with his values. Or as I like to tell my kids, there is no one on this earth who is any better than you. And you aren't better than anyone else on this earth. God loves you all the same, and you should love all the same too. I love this passage because it's one of those humbling, encouraging passages that tells us we're all in this together. No matter who we are or where we've been or what we've done, and I hate this passage because that's a really complicated idea to wrestle with, no matter which seat at the table you have or think you have or want to have. But mostly, I love this passage because it is such a powerful reminder of a love so great that God grabs those in places of power and comfort and offers real, authentic community in the place of fakeness. And God grabs those in places of vulnerability and struggle and offers them a feast at the table. Thanks be to God. Amen.